Uh, now, each week we say that we want to follow Jesus, love our neighbors, and build an economically and racially diverse church. And we don't just say that because it's something nice. We say it because it's necessary. And we don't just say it to be politically correct. We say it to be biblically correct. And this month we are pausing to honor and to celebrate black history because black history is not just history of African Americans, but it's American history. And in our church, I'm so thankful that we have people who have served God for a long time and who are part of our church, our seniors, some who are retired, and, um, and I would encourage the rest of us to honor them, to esteem them, to, take them, to invite them over for dinner, to hear their stories, to learn from them. They, um, what's that commercial say? I've, I've seen a lot. I've been around a lot, so I know a lot. The, the insurance one, what's that go? how's that go? I've seen a thing, a thing or two, so I know a thing or two. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's what I was trying to say. Uh, and this, a couple weeks ago, I had an opportunity to sit down with uh, Miss Shirley and just ask some stories about, about her life and about her, her journey with, with Jesus and what that was like growing up in Colorado. And so I've we put it on video, and I've got just a few minutes of that I want to highlight to share with you today, just some history right here in our own neighborhood, in our own church. So go ahead and play that. Well, I will always wish this area had not changed because I thought it was so great, you yeah. know. I recall when I lived here, I lived on, um, right up the street on 32nd and Holly on the corner. Oh. Kind of right by Holly Square. Mm -hmm. And this was a metropolis then. It was just anything and everything that any neighborhood would desire black, white, green, or yellow mm. because everything was there at their fingertips there. Right there at the high, different businesses. The different business, businesses, the restaurants, the clubs, the bowling rinks, skating rinks, everything was where we're sitting right here there. and over there where the here, campus the is. Mm -hmm. Over there at the campus. Well, see, I started writing a novel when, because each sentence when you say, tell me about yourself, I started writing a whole three or well, four chapters on that, but yourself. no. I, <laughs> but anyway, I'm, uh, my name is Shirley Bryant Phillips, hyphenated, and I was born in Colorado Springs, Colorado, 84 years ago. Don't know my, I didn't know my biological mother until 60 some years later. Huh. Uh, apparently, I was born uh, a sickly child, mm -hmm. and my parents lived on 23rd and Welton. At, at that time, my uh, father and stepmother and my siblings. Okay. And uh, so, for your teenage years, that's where you, you grew up. Pretty much. What? Pretty what, much. What was that like? Uh, it was interesting to me. I walked from there to Cole Junior High every day. Yeah. And walked through the Five Points area, mm -hmm. went to Cole Junior High, continued from Cole Junior High, and went to Manuel. Cole Junior High was experiencing some problems, but I didn't see them as racial. Mm -hmm. I saw them as you do in most schools today, bullies. Gotcha. And they seemed to pick on new people. I was sure. a new people. 
So I had to establish myself real fast. Mm -hmm. Told a lot of scary lies to them to keep them off of me. <laughs> and what was, what was Manuel like at the time? I thought it was heaven, and everybody that went there went to died and gone to heaven because we were so totally integrated. Hmm. We had probably more Asian and Japanese people, like, you know, hmm. a few Spanish, blacks, mm -hmm. but we were one family. So yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a good experience. Very good experience. After high school, what, where did life take you? Uh, let me see, to marriage, to motherhood, to family, to abuse. Hmm. Uh, I had three children. Uh, and I went through quite a bit of this evil there, but I kept myself. For some reason, I had a strong spirit, independent spirit, so I wasn't going to allow too much abuse or anything to occur. It finally reached its climax. Thank God no one was killed, but it came to that point. Really? Mm -hmm. That was from your husband? Yes. Mm -hmm. But I had the opportunity to go to college, and I took that opportunity, okay. and I went to see you. Got it. So went to college a little later? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the strange thing about going there later is this was during the period of young people not trusting anyone mm -hmm. over 30. Okay. Yeah. But I became president of the Black Student Alliance. Really? So, what, uh, what did that entail? Like, what did you... Well, you know, all universities, I guess, have their little sections, you know, mm -hmm. of uh, sororities, this, that, and the other, yeah. and, and this was uh, an organization that Black students on campus had a word or a venue, uh, a spokesperson okay. for the university at large. Mm -hmm. okay. And that was you? That was me. Did, uh, so did you have like rallies and oh, marches? Oh yeah, we had or? rallies, we had marches, and if you go, we went back in the, uh, whatever they call it, the news thing with jigs, you probably find a lot of stuff on me because I was quite activist. Okay. This was during the uh, Martin Luther King area as well, mm -hmm. you know, and the Vietnam War. And mostly, yeah, we held a lot of marches and stuff on that, you know, because of the resistance towards mm -hmm. it. And, and how, how was that uh, received, like on campus or uh, just from the... Uh, well, we closed down the campus. <laughs> <laughs> Regency was closed down. We took it over. <laughs> yeah. And did, uh, through the years living here, did you ever experience any type of racism or what was your... Among my own people, yeah. I okay. still experience that. In, because in it's class-like, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't think like them, uh, then they're racist against you. You know, you think you're bitter, you this, that, and the other, and blah, blah, blah. I call, them, call a lot of names in here. Hmm. But I'm an independent thinker. <laughs> well, you are, and I, I uh, we came across the, this article. This is from the Park Hill Advertiser mm -hmm. from 1987. And here on the, the front page, it says, The Resurgence of Shirley Bryant. And it's got your, your picture here. Yeah. So what? What was this article uh, about? What did they? Uh, this is when I had started pretty much the uh, venture with uh, De Gregory's products, 
and developed uh, Shirley Bryant Enterprises to get that off the ground and mm -hmm. recruit uh, representatives for the area. Okay. Yeah, and that was probably a resurgence from my college days when I was kind of a rebel. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what they're <laughs> referring to. Yeah, right here. Front page. <laughs> Yeah, that kind of surprised me too. I'm like, wow, sir, she that was just given to me last night. So this is a, a someone that's been holding on to this. Yes, huh. yes, and she lives here, and she said, I have something for you. I kept. She says, I have something for you, but I just can't see myself coming up to the fourth floor. She lives on the <laughs> third floor. That's a long, that's a long <laughs> way. Yes, long. <laughs> But anyway, she got it to me last night, and I really, really enjoyed it because I hadn't thought about this stuff in, yeah. in years and years. Martin had came here and spoke at one of the churches, and someone decided to pick up a rally, the black kids, uh, basically because they learned a whole lot about racism that they didn't know because they were exposed through the the TV, which I was too. I had no idea what was going on okay. in the rest of the world. But it came to light through TV and and so you have some children that are act, want to be activists or something and they went the wrong way and they tore up their own neighborhood. And mm. Of course I was <laughs> my activism thing, but I was really upset. Why in the hell are you tearing down your own neighborhood? You're not angry with us. <laughs> <laughs> You're angry with them. Why didn't you go over there? <laughs> yeah. So that was happening but in the neighborhood. That, yeah, that's when it started, really. Just mm. going down. Uh, now, I do remember the, the racism that was in the neighborhood as far as housing was concerned. Mm. That blacks couldn't live. I think she lives somewhere close around in here now. You mm -hmm. couldn't live there then. Mm. Back in the day when I was coming up, you couldn't live in this area beyond York. Okay. And, uh... So you tried... You, uh, was there a time uh, where you couldn't live beyond York and then it kind of opened up and you wanted... Everybody tried to, to go that way? Is oh, that... absolutely. Yeah, because they figured if you got to York, you would have arrived as far as, you know, uh, what do you call it, status, okay. whatever. Trying to get to York. Yeah, trying to get to York. And I remember as a child, the closest we got to York was to Gaylord. Okay. <laughs> almost. Uh, yeah, almost, almost made, made it. All, that's what we said, almost made it. <laughs> I mean, so did you grow up going to church? Absolutely. Well, until I came here to live with my, my father and my stepmother, they were not really religious, but we did go to church that was convenient in the neighborhood, which was Central Baptist Church at that particular time. On, uh, but today, that's why <laughs> sure. I hold on to that. And I thank God my prayer daily is thanking you for each day and for him directing my path and ordering my steps, my thoughts and my words in his way. Because then I'll know I'll go in the right way. And let me follow those, you know. And I, I tell him all the time, I said, I'm a spoiled brat, and I know it. <laughs> I do. This is the way I talk to him, because he's my father. Yeah. <laughs> what I would say at this point, in looking back over my life, that my faith was the basis of everything. Had I not been indoctrinated mm -hmm. 
in my faith and the fear of God, I can't tell you where I would have ended up. I really can't tell you. Miss Shirley, we love you. And we're glad you're part of the Hills Church. And uh, that's right. And uh, she has a lot to, to offer, a lot to teach us. And so I'd encourage you uh, to ask ask her story, and I'm sure she would be happy to sit down and, uh, and share with you. And I think uh, that was worth coming today. Just, just for that, it's all downhill from there. <clears throat> but uh, last week, we began to answer the question, is Christianity a white man's religion? And we barely scratched the surface. And the problem is that the American church is just ignorant of its African roots and so we want to take a look at that today, and, um, you know, when it, there's been some controversy through the years, when it, through the years, a little bit of controversy. Well, in 2013, there was a, a couple of things that happened in larger culture that shined a light on Scripture and how we look at Scripture. I don't know if you remember, there was a series called the, the Bible miniseries, and it was a scandal because Samson was played by a black man. It was all over social media, I don't know if you remember that, but... Christians are like, oh, Samson wasn't black. And, but now I wasn't around when the Ten Commandments came out in 1956 with Charlton Heston. I don't, remember, I don't remember anything from then. But I wonder if people complain about a white guy playing Moses. I don't know. That's just me. Um, and then that same year, there was a, a news anchor, Megyn Kelly of Fox News. She confidently declared that Santa Claus and Jesus were white as a historical fact. And she Got quite a bit of pushback, as she should. And then people started to look at pictures, the original, like the oldest pictures we had of old St. Nick, and found that he was actually uh, dark-skinned in the oldest pictures that we have of him. And, of course, we talked about Jesus not being white last, uh, last week. But as we, we celebrate Black History Month, we want to uncover the black presence in the Bible so they can aid us in lamenting the church's role in racism that we've had, that we have shared, that we have played in that. And um, so the arguments, I just want to recap. Last week we talked about it. But there's an argument that um, the gospel is not for people of color. By whitewashing uh, the Bible, like we have just pushed, uh, pushed black people out. And the argument goes the Bible is a white man's book written by white men for white men. And I'm using men on purpose there and not just people. Um, because it is a white man's religion, the argument goes, black people should reject it and return to more traditional African religions. After all, Christianity has been used to keep black people docile, marginalized, and ignorant. Um, so we need to understand the roots of our faith. If, if this is the, the argument uh, that we're beginning to hear or that's been going on for a while, we need to be able to address these and, and build our faith on a solid foundation. Like, is that true? And if it's not true, then what is, what is truth? And, and last week, we looked at Acts chapter 8, and we found that the first non-Jewish, non-Samaritan convert to Christianity was a well-educated, wealthy, politically connected black man. You remember that? It was just last week. All right. Make sure we're still there. And we said before the gospel went to Europe, it went to Africa. 
So even in biblical times, God was at work in the lives of black people, and God did not ignore people of color. God chose people of color, and it's important that we reject any notion that people of color are anything less than the objects of God's affections. Amen? Amen. So today I want to take us through Scripture a little bit, through a little bit of, of church history, and I'm not, I mean, we are just like barely scratching the surface in this, and I would encourage you to do some of your own research. Um, there's a it's only about a 170-page book. It's called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind, written by Thomas Oden. He's a renowned theologian, and he looks at the, the roots of, of the Christian faith, and it, it helped me in my preparations uh, for today. Uh, very, now, he's a theologian, and some of the times when he's talking, you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. <laughs> a little difficult, but if you want more, you can look there. Plus, I mean, just Google, Black Presence in the Bible. You can find all kinds of information. Uh, another book that you might check out is called The Black Presence in the Bible by Walter uh, McRae. Now, I've not read that one, but I saw some reviews online, and it looked, it looked helpful. Uh, so I would encourage you, if you're interested in this or would like more information, do some research. Like a couple years ago, it would have been difficult, I think, to maybe find this information, but more and more, it's coming to the surface. It's easier for us. So where, where should we start? I thought about just putting up some maps. And like looking at some maps, in fact, I have one of the Bible, well, there it is, look, of Bible times. Now, if you know your Bible, so you got Jerusalem kind of down here in the bottom, Egypt and south, most of uh, the Old Testament, all down there, Paul's journeys took him over uh, into Europe a bit. But under the Black Sea, Asia Minor, there's a strait under the Black Sea during the Byzantine period, uh, you can call them the Straits of Byzantine, it divides basically Europe from Asia. Now, the vast majority of Scripture takes place in Asia Minor and South around Jerusalem. Like where it doesn't take place very often is in what we would consider uh, Europe. And so, I mean, just looking at, at a simple map, we can say that Jesus, his family, his disciples, uh, not white, all right? They were not White. So where do we start? How about page one of Scripture? Where do we start in our journey today? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.26 talks about the creation of man, and he said, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Since about the 14th century, the time of the Renaissance, Adam and Eve had been portrayed as white. Like that, that was a white artist. Um, but where was the Garden of Eden? It's a trick question. Nobody knows. All right. Uh, scripture talks about some rivers that came together, the Tigris and Euphrates and Pishon and Gihon. And, and like, rivers change over time. It's so like to, to pinpoint an area, scholars sometimes think that it was in modern-day Iraq. It was the cradle of civil, civilization. Um, but there's no clear agreement about where the Garden of Eden was. And even amongst biblical scholars who have a high view of Scripture, there's not even agreement if the stories in Genesis 1 and 2 should be taken literally. Like, so maybe this was a figurative place. And so uh, there's, but what does science say about our ancestors? 
1988, so you got to go back a few years, the cover story on Newsweek, there was an article that described Eve, not necessarily the Eve of the Bible that we read about, but our first ancestor. Uh, and there was a molecular biologist, really smart people, all right? They traced DNA from different countries, and what they found was that they were able to go back a couple hundred thousand years to, to one woman. And they said from that that we are all related back to this one woman. So what that means is the next time I get in a, a financial bind, I'm giving you a call because we're family. All right, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I need some help. <laughs> but uh, it does mean we are related. But uh, Stephen J. Gold, who was a, a famous ev evolutionary biologist, was quoted in this article. And he said, if it's correct that there is one Eve, and I'd put my money on it, this idea is tremendously important. It makes us realize that all human beings, despite differences in external appearance, are really members of a single entity uh, that's had a very recent origin in one place. There was a kind of biological brotherhood uh, that's much more profound than we ever realized. So we have a common ancestor. But, well, so what? What did our first mother look like? I've got a picture from the, the article that day. So this is was on the cover of Newsweek, 1988, and they said in the article that Eve was likely a dark-haired, black-skinned woman roaming the hot savannah in search of food. So you don't have to go to Acts chapter 8 to find black people in Scripture. Apparently, you can go to the first page of Scripture to find the black presence in the Bible. That's kind of quiet. And he said, let me say amen on that. Uh, but when God created humanity in his image, who showed up? I don't know. Not Ken and Barbie. That's all I'm saying. And that, that is not to diminish the image of God in any ethnic group. But it, what it is to say, and it, what it does do, I think, is it raises up the image of God and people who in our nation who have been long oppressed and overlooked thought less of and not quite in the image of God. And, and for my black brothers and sisters who are here today, know that you have been on God's mind from the beginning. Like you are not a, an afterthought. You are not an outsider to God's plan. Like God created you and God loves you. Amen. Amen. So page, page one, and there are too many references for us to go through in Scripture to find the African presence in the Bible. I'm just going to highlight a couple in, in Numbers chapter 12. How about Moses' wife? Miriam and Aaron are, are brother and sister to Moses, and they began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife. Now, we're a little separated in time. Like, what is Cushite? Cushite is... is uh, from the Nubian kingdom centered in modern-day nation of Sudan. That's most likely, I mean, Kush could mean different things. I mean, we're going long ways in, in history. But in general, most likely, most definitely, uh, Moses had a Kushite wife. I mean, it says in Scripture, and was probably from the Sudan. I once heard a, uh, a black preacher, and you'll understand why I qualified this, a black preacher say this. Um, he said, no wonder Moses was able to stand up to Pharaoh. 
he had to go home when it was over. Mm -hmm. And he said there was a strong black woman telling him, you better go tell Pharaoh, let God's people go. Okay, all right. Let's keep moving on. Uh, So right there, Numbers chapter 12. How about in the Psalms? Have you you seen any presence of Africa as you read through the the Psalms? Psalm 68 uh, talks about the Ethiopians raising their hands in prayer to God. Psalm 87 talks about uh, Cush, again, talks about Egypt, as God saying that they were born in Zion, like they are his people. There's mention of Africa in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 18, in Isaiah, he's going through the different nations. He goes through like a table of nations, and each one of them, he is bringing down God's judgment. Like, uh, and Cush is one of them, where he is, they have turned their back, and because you've done this, God's judgment is coming. Uh, But then he ends with a bit of hope. In Isaiah 18, God says, At that time, gifts will be brought to the Lord Almighty from a people tall and smooth-skinned, from a people feared far and wide, an aggressive nation of strange speech whose land is divided by rivers. The gifts will be brought to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord Almighty. He had previously mentioned Cush, but saying there was a day of salvation coming for Cush. Jeremiah 38 and 39 We have a two-year Bible reading plan. We just finished up Jeremiah. So I don't know if you caught this or not, if you're reading along with us, but there was a guy. How many of you have heard of uh, Abed-Melech? Abed-Melech? Oh, yeah, we got a couple. Abed-Melech. So he was a a servant to the king. King Zedekiah was the last king of Israel. And Jeremiah was prophesying doom and gloom on Jerusalem. Like, you better turn your ways. God's judgment's coming in fact, you should probably just surrender now to the Babylonians. Well, people didn't like that. They took Jeremiah and they threw him in an old well, an old cistern where he began to sink in the mud. And the king knew about this. Uh, Ebed uh, saw that this was happening. He goes to the king. He's like, king, this is not right. Jeremiah is a righteous man. And the king's like, do what you need to do. So he gathered 30 men. They went and they brought Jeremiah out of the cistern um, in, and basically put their lives on the line for Jeremiah because of, uh, of what was going on politically at that time. And then God says to Jeremiah, tell Abed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. And he says, I'm going I'm to wipe out Jerusalem, but I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be given into the hands of those who fear you. I will save you. You will not fall, uh, fall by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me declares the Lord. Is this right, right in the middle of the, of the Old Testament? Oh, how about in the New Testament? Are you familiar with Simon the Cyrene? Anyone heard of Simon the Cyrene? You can find him in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he was there in the day when Jesus was carrying his cross to be crucified, and Jesus could no longer stand up under the weight of the cross and fell to his knees. And of all the people who could have been there that day, who could have been commissioned in, so to speak, to carry the cross. It's, uh, it was Simon the Cyrene, an able-bodied African man. Cyrene is, is in Africa. And it, wouldn't it be like God to let a black man carry Jesus' cross? Of all the people in the world, who could handle the weight? Who could handle the load? Go get the brother. He can carry the cross of Jesus. And he's mentioned by name in Scripture, and in three different books of the Bible. So these are just a couple of the examples. 
And if you were to look up all the references to Africa and Africans in Scripture, there are over 1,400 references in Scripture. Do you know how many references there are to Anglo-European folks? I don't know. I, I didn't, couldn't find that one. Uh, but it's way less from everything that I saw. So in the Old Testament, there's no mention of any Anglo-European groups. In the New Testament, we have mention of Rome about 50 times. Paul begins his journeys, and he, he goes into places like Corinth and uh, into Athens, and he makes it to Rome. So there are more mentions. But if you were just to, to weigh in the balance the number of mentions of people from Africa versus people from Europe, the scale is tipped largely in the favor of Africa. This is, this is important uh, to note. Now, now, the Bible was written by about 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years or, or so. Uh, do you know how many of those were white? White guys in this white religion by white men for white men? Maybe one. Luke. Luke wrote uh, Luke and Acts. Every, all the other ones were uh, of, of Jewish descent, of uh, more Middle, of Middle Eastern um, so we, uh, are you guys with me so far where we're going? All right. And, and last week we talked about the, uh, the book of Acts and how the gospel spread to Africa early on. And in fact, Ethiopia, in Ethiopia, Christianity became the national religion years before it became the religion of the empire in Rome. Like there was already a Christian civilization established and it, it existed, uh, for even, to today, like it has been an ongoing Christian civilization. Um, and it was in Africa that the earliest academies began, where Christian scholarship has its origins. Have you ever heard of, um, in your studies of, of church history, <laughs> no, who, who wants to study that? Uh, have you ever heard of the early church fathers? The early church fathers. These were uh, the guys who, who defended the faith against uh, believers and, and non-believers and worked out doctrine like the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the incarnation. And, and, the, and we don't talk much about the early church fathers. I'm going to be honest with you. I haven't read much about them. I know some names, some people, not a whole lot of dates. Um, but their influence has stretched down from generation to generation, even how we read Scripture uh, today. And uh, they impacted the East and Western Traditions, so Orthodox and Catholic and, and later Protestant. Um, these were the greatest, uh, some of the greatest minds in our history. And we usually refer to some of them as the Latin fathers or Greek fathers, depending on what language they spoke. If they, were, they, if they taught in, in, in New Latin, then it was Latin, Latin fathers, and the others were the, the Greek fathers. So guys like Clement, Origen, Athanasius, uh, spoke Greek, while Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine, or Augustine, however you want to say it. Um, I think it would be helpful, instead of calling them Latin fathers or Greek fathers, what if we called them the African church fathers? Like that may have a, a, a different, uh, give us a different perspective on how we see history and clear things up for us. And I don't have time. You can, uh, again, you can do some searching on your own. Just search early church fathers or African church fathers, and you can find out about these guys like uh, just uh, St. Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. He was born in Algeria. Where's Algeria? 
It's Africa. All right. There we, there we go. Uh, but we cannot overemphasize the, um, just the intellectual influence that Augustine has had on all of history. Like through Western history, he wrote the, his Confessions, and, it, and what scholars think was the first biography in Western literature. It's Augustine, an African man. He wrote uh, The City of God, which has shaped Western political philosophy. He wrote On the Trinity, which took him 20 years to complete. He was a philosopher, a bishop, a theologian. Um, so just an incredible man of God, incredible influence on our faith even today, and we don't even realize it. But during medieval times, European painters depicted the church fathers as white, European men. And many of these paintings are still featured in uh, journals, in history books. In fact, here's a picture of, uh, I think we've got one of Augustine. Ah, oh, nice European smart guy right there. Uh, but what if, what if he looks something like this? I mean, we, we don't know what he looked like. But he wasn't an Anglo-European. He was an African man who has, uh, who has influenced our faith even today. And, and in the, the book, How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind, Thomas uh, writes, The point must be savored unhurriedly to sink in deeply. The Christians to the south of the Mediterranean, that's Africa, were teaching the Christians to the north. Africans were informing and instructing and educating the very best of Syria, Cappadocian, and Greco-Roman teachers. This flow of intellectual leadership in time matured into ecumenical consensus on how to interpret sacred scripture and hence into the core of Christian dogma. You see what I mean by a theologian? He's got like all these words, big words. Really what he's trying to say is that African scholars were influencing the north. Like the, the scholarship flowed from Africa to Europe. And 2,000 years later, I took classes on biblical interpretation in my mostly white seminary, and that education that I received was influenced by the African church fathers, whether I was told that or realized that at the time. Like, that influence has gone down through the ages. Um, and this, this is important for us to understand that our faith has more African influence than we realize, and, and Africa has thoroughly shaped Christianity worldwide. So is Christianity a white man's religion? Listen, we'll try it one more time. I need some feedback. Is Christianity the white man's religion? No. No, no it, is, it is for us white folks too. But it is not by white people, for white people. And the, the picture we get of Christianity, of modern Christianity, is, is one when it, in terms of Africa of oppression and colonization. And that's not entirely wrong, that picture. But it's not the full picture. It's not all that has happened. And, and what if the West, what if we are more deeply indebted to Africa than we imagine? I had a conversation on, on Friday uh, with a, a black Christian friend. And she was telling me uh, just recently she had an, another friend who was Christian but is beginning to pull back from her Christian faith because she wants to get back to her African roots. Um, and, and so this is not just some, like, exercise and a history class today. This is, this is ground-level kind of stuff. But I would say if, if 20 centuries of Christian presence in Africa do not make a religion traditional, what is to be done with Islam, which is younger in Africa by 
600 years. If Christianity is not native to Africa, then the 17th century arrival of many Bantus in Zululand is not yet indigenous. If 4th century European Christianity is not yet native to African culture, then the 9th century arrival of the camel is not yet native to African culture. Christianity is at home in Africa, and Africa was the seedbed of much Christian scholarship and influence through the ages. And so here's, here's the main point. Here's where I've been trying to get to the last two weeks. The view that Christianity is a re- recent religion in Africa is not based in historical fact, but reflects Eurocentric interpretations of the Bible and history. I think it's up there. Let's just let that sink in. Sink in. The view that Christianity is a recent religion in Africa is not based in historical fact, but reflects Eurocentric interpretations of the Bible. In other words, whether you're, you're white or black, and if you would argue that Christianity is a white man's faith, you're arguing from a Eurocentric perspective, not a biblical, not a, a historical one, and you're viewing history through a, an Anglo-European lens. So... If you argue that Christianity is a white man's religion, you have embraced a Eurocentric ideology. Do you see the irony? If you argue that Christianity is a white man's religion, you have embraced a Eurocentric ideology. And in trying to push off Christianity as being white, you are actually embracing a white view of history. I hope this is helpful for us as a a church. Um, It's been helpful for me. It's been eye-opening for me. So the next time someone tries to tell you that you are serving a white man's God and it's a white man's religion, you just show them your Bible and say, you haven't read half the Bible. You don't know half the story. You don't know your history. You You might sound like you know something, but you don't know. And I think learning our collective history can guide us in truth, and it can guide us in reconciliation. Amen? I meant to, to know this background. And, and at the end of the day, I, I don't, if, if you, like I've seen, uh, I mean, I grew up with pictures of white Jesus. I remember when I was a teenager, seeing the very first time I saw black Jesus. I was going in, uh, I was in South Dallas and Oak Cliff, predominantly black neighborhood, going to Big T's Bazaar. You know about Big T's Bazaar. Big T's Bazaar is this, uh, uh, how would you describe Big T's Bazaar? You can get just about anything there. Stereos. I got some nice Nikes with a Fruit of the Loom tag on it. I guess one of those, like, you can just find everything. And I remember, get your oil changed. (laughs) You get a little bit of everything at uh, at Big T's and... uh, I was the minority in there, and I still remember the tank top and Nike shorts I got. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but when I saw the, the, the Last Supper with the black Jesus and the black disciples, like, that threw me for a loop. I was like, oh, no. no. <laughs> Jesus isn't black. Not ever stopping to consider that picture that I have on my wall of white Jesus Jesus isn't white. Like Jesus, and if you go to Asia, guess what you'll find? Asian Jesus. Because Jesus is for every culture and every people and every language. 
That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's for everybody. Amen. I just want to conclude with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is the message version, so it's a modern paraphrase. And it says of Jesus, one man died for everyone. That puts everyone in the same boat. He included everyone in his death so that everyone could also be included in his life, a, a resurrection life, a far better life than people ever lived on their own. We don't evaluate people by what they have or how they look. We looked at the Messiah that way once and got it all wrong. We certainly don't look at, like, uh, look at him like that anymore. Anyone united with the Messiah gets a fresh start, is created new. The old is gone. All this comes from God who settled the relationship between us and him and then called us to settle our relationships with each other. God put the world square with himself through the Messiah, giving the world a fresh start by offering forgiveness of sins. And God has given us the task of telling everyone what he is doing. We are Christ's representatives. God uses us to persuade men and women to drop their differences and to enter into God's work of making things right between them. We're speaking for Christ himself now. Become friends with God. He's already a friend with you. How, you ask? In Christ. God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. And I, um, I wholeheartedly believe that as we uh, begin to to search and to study scripture and, and to see the, the black presence of the Bible, like for some of us today as, as a response, it may be one of repentance. Like a viewing, we have viewed scripture through a certain lens for so long. Maybe we viewed it through our European Anglo lens for so long that we need to say, God, I, God, I, I'm sorry. God, forget, forgive us as, as a church. Lament on behalf of the church in America. For some of us, we need to lament. For others, maybe God wants to work some healing in your heart. Like maybe you were beginning to push away from Jesus because of some of the, the arguments about Christianity being the white man's religion. And maybe today God wants to do some, some work in your heart. And maybe for others, hearing this maybe for the first time means that you can trust Jesus as your Savior. So would you bow your heads with me? Just take a moment to reflect. There's so much more that could be said, that needs to be said. But would you just examine your heart before God? Father, I ask that your church would be whole, that your church would be reconciled, that your church would fully reflect the image of God to those outside our walls, people from different backgrounds, different cultures, different ethnicities, different economics, different education 
God, all beautifully made in your image. And would you do the, the deep work in us? Father, help us to see, help me to see where I've missed the mark in these things. Help us to begin to press into those areas of ignorance maybe we didn't know about. I ask that our American church would repent corporately. racism that we have allowed within our ranks, the racism with which we have read scripture with. And would you bring healing to your church, Jesus? Would you have mercy on us? desperately need you. We desperately need you.